0: Welcome to episode 81 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today we have another replay. As many of you know, I've been on holiday um, and I've been skiing, so I didn't have much time or energy to do any editing and um, creating a new podcast. So we still got plenty in the pipeline that are coming up for you soon. And the reason I've chosen this one is because uh, a friend of mine's daughter was Diagnosed with type 1 diabetes last summer. And I thought it was important to, for us to understand more about type 1 diabetes because this is an autoimmune condition where the body isn't doing what it was, what it is meant to do. And, you know, we, we don't know why that happens, but sometimes it happens because the body is trying to process too much sugar and it's constantly, constantly releasing insulin. And then the pancreas um, doesn't function as well. But I think the important thing is, is more importantly, is that currently in, in the UK, for example, the NICE guidelines, the, I think it's National Institute of Clinical Excellence, do not offer Carbohydrate restriction or car- low carbohydrate diets for people with type 1 diabetes. And you'll also hear me talk in the, in the episode about Hannah Boetis, who in episode 3 was saying how angry she was that she wasn't offered this as an option. Um, we re-interviewed Hannah in episode 51, if you want to go back and listen to that. Since interviewing Dr. Lake, he has done an experiment where eight people, including Olympic athlete James Cracknell, covered a 100 miles in five days, consuming zero calories. So they were all fasted. They all ran a 100 miles and they all completed it. They were all experienced in both fasting and endurance sports. And the reason for doing this was to build up some research about how a low carbohydrate lifestyle can result in metabolic shift from carbohydrates to fat metabolism. And when fat is the body's main fuel source, um, then this can sh- be shown to stabilise um, blood glucose levels and reduce the need for insulin treatment in diabetes. So, Dr. Lake has done a whole review of this on his website and the link to his website, which is type one, the number one keto dot com. So T Y P E number one keto dot com, type one keto dot com. You can see all the information that he, he shared that they gathered while they were doing this experiment and they had two type one diabetics. That were um on on the run, and they they got some really good um results and measurements from that. So also in the show notes is the link to the actual page that shows about this experiment that they did. So really encourage you to go over and look at Dr. Lake's website and the experiment they did they did. So what also reminded me when I was re listening to this podcast was that there was a lot of background noise. Um, Dr. Lake had a lorry backing up, um, around outside of him and actually near me now has stopped. But when, at the beginning of this recording, you probably heard some gardening and some, there's a bonfire going by the sound of it. So, I just thought I'd mention that that beeping is um, was outside Dr Lake's house and we couldn't do anything about it. We had to keep recording through it because it was going for ages. But it made me smile to remember that, remember back to that. So I'll hand over to the podcast that we did nearly two years ago, or a year and a half ago, and I hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we're interviewing Dr Ian Lake, GP, and this is episode number 15. We saw Dr. Lake giving a presentation at the PHC in 2019. And Louise, did you see him in 2018 as well? Was he presenting Ooh, I can't
1: then? Remember.
0: Yeah, I can't remember. I have a feeling he was, but I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember that. I think he did.
1: Dr. Lake is, a, as you said, a, a general practitioner. But what makes his experience not only as a practitioner but a person that is living with type one diabetes. So today's you know episode gives us a really interesting contrast because obviously with people that experience type one diabetes and you know they're told to obviously medicate and balance their medication with obviously consuming carbohydrates. And what makes Dr. Lake's experience so different is number one, obviously, you know, being a practitioner, and uh, number two, being a type 1 diabetic who is living and breathing on and using a ketogenic diet as part of his therapy. So, this experience, you know, is really contrary to what the NICE guidelines and all the standard models practice of care is. And it's just, you know, mind boggling how um, he's actually, you know, he's got his cutting his his sails against the wind, so to speak. Mm. So it's really fantastic. Um, And certainly his experience is, is one that we really want to share widely.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Dr. Ian Lake is a GP in Gloucestershire. He's had a long term interest in preventative medicine. Having type 1 diabetes himself, he eventually discovered and was strongly influenced by the book Richard Bernstein's Diabetes Solution he went on to a very low carbohydrate diet five years ago which he feels has positively transformed his daily diabetes control to near non-diabetes level he has launched a website to provide information and education about keto diets in type 1 diabetes he is also the founding member of the public health collaboration which is a charity dedicated to promoting real food lifestyle So welcome Ian to the faber C Keto Podcast. It's fabulous to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. Nice to be with you. It's very nice of you to invite me. Thank you very much.
1: So it's certainly our pleasure. And normally when we start the podcast, we start with asking you where in the world you are.
2: I'm in Stroud in Gloucestershire in the UK.
1: Right. And that's wonderful. Lovely place. You love that part of the country?
2: Cotswolds are lovely. Yeah. I was born in the east of the country. So it's very flat over there. So it's lovely to come to some hilly areas of, uh, of the world. It's great. Love it. Lo-
0: yeah. I love Stroud. Where in the east were you from?
2: Lincolnshire. Ah, okay. Spalding, South Lincolnshire, where all the crops are made, uh, crops all are the produced. Potatoes. Yeah. 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 Lots of potatoes, lots of wheat. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: all the things we'll that we don't to eat. Them. We don't eat. <laughs>
2: That's why I had to move. <laughs>
0: So, tell us, Ian, a little bit how you found keto and your journey to it.
2: Okay. Well, I have type 1 diabetes and I've had that now for 25 years. I was diagnosed uh, as a late onset type 1 diabetic uh, in my 30s. And obviously, I knew nothing about how to manage diabetes other than as, as a doctor, if you see what I mean. So, I went straight on to insulin and counting carbohydrates. And I did that relatively unsuccessfully for 20 years. Obviously, I had a lucky break where for the first two years I was in the honeymoon phase, so I didn't need much insulin. Uh, and then as as the diabetes started to take hold, my insulin requirements increased. And my HbA1c was hovering around the then normal recommendation by NICE of 56 millimoles per mole, which isn't very good um, by by my standards today. Uh, And I managed to hold on to that for a long, long time. And my escape route for relatively poor diabetes control was uh, exercise. But after 20 years, I started to feel that my diabetes was catching up with me quite badly. I was starting to ache. The worst symptom by far for me was postural hypotension, where you stand up and you go very dizzy and lightheaded. And that was happening several times a day and was extremely disabling palpitations on just walking upstairs, joint aches and pains, foggy thinking, foggy vision, etc., etc. And I didn't really know how to manage my way out of trouble because clearly physical activity failed. And it was difficult for me to get the carbohydrates and the insulin right. It didn't matter how much I tried. It just wasn't working for me. Some days would be really, really good. Other days would be horrendous and being at work as a GP, it's not easy to uh, get any physical activity for, for long periods of the day. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't very good. And by complete accident, I discovered Dr. Bernstein's diabetes solution, which is considered really to be a sort of authoritative text on how to manage type one diabetes with low carb diet. Uh, and I read that from cover to cover thinking this is something I want to do. And then I put it down for a year, uh, and the reason I put it down for a year was because I, I felt that all of that fat wasn't healthy, <laughs> mm. uh, how little I knew then. But that, was the, that is still, unfortunately, I, I think, unfortunately, the, the current recommendation for, for a healthy diet, low-fat. Um, but it got to the point, really, where I had a very, very nasty hypo when I was on my own wild camping in Norway uh, on a cycling trip, and it was a solo trip. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I'd used up all of my glucose supplies. So I wasn't carrying much being a bike, uh, and my blue glucose was in hypo range, and, and I was about half a mile from the nearest road, let alone civilization. And that that was a tricky time. I managed to pack all my stuff up and cycle to the road, and as luck would have it, there was some discarded food in a layby just as I got to the off the track, and you know that. You could argue that, that that saved me, but it was certainly a, a moment that caught me, caught me by surprise. And, wow. and, and, and I, I felt then uh, I ought to think about other ways of uh, trying to manage things because being out and about and being sort of doing those sort of adventures is sort of something I identify strongly with. I felt, well, if I was going to put myself in extreme danger like that, it's, um, you know, it, it's not fair on anybody really. So just after that, I had a, a retinal screening and it showed mild, you know, very mild background diabetic retinopathy. So I thought, well, if that's going on in my eyes, it's going on everywhere else in my body, which would explain all the symptoms that I was getting, especially the postural hypotension, which is where the nerves that supply the blood vessels can't operate to, to, to constrict them quickly enough. Uh, sort of a neuropathy, really, a diabetic neuropathy. So I decided after all of that to to get started with keto. I reread Richard Bernstein's book, and from day one, I went fully keto. And really, it was such a revelation from day one. I never looked back, and I've, I've, I've been doing keto for five years ever since. And my HbA1c, which is which one of the markers, obviously of good control, has gone down from the last reading was 70, which is not good at all. And it, it went down to 44, and now... For the last five years it's been under uh forty two uh, mostly in the high thirties, so I feel confident that I can manage my diabetes with ketogenic diet very easily. All my symptoms have gone i'm very very lucky in that my diabetic retinopathy has temporarily disappeared, and I hope that stays away. so there is potential to reverse some of the diabetes complications if you get them early enough yeah and uh yeah I'm keen really to to make sure everyone at least knows about benefits of ketogenic diet in type 1 diabetes. The more and more I, I learn about keto diet in type 1, the more it becomes so obvious it is a good option for some people. Uh, but at the moment, unfortunately, it isn't an option in, in the UK at all.
0: Yeah, they don't promote it.
1: Oh, But what about the NICE guidelines, though, in terms of obviously there is some recognition with some of those guidelines, say with Dr. Unwin's, you know, spoon spoonful of sugar. So there is perhaps a little bit of traction?
2: There's traction in type two diabetes. Certainly the the NICE guidelines will almost certainly recommend some form of low-carb diet for certain people in type two diabetes, and and the recommendations are changing around the world. But the type one guidelines are due to be revised this year. And the last type one guidelines of twenty fifteen I couldn't find any reference to low-carb at all in those guidelines. And then I looked at the appendix, and in appendix C, section 1.2.2, which is burned on my memory, (laughs) the question was posed, what is the effectiveness of low-carb, sorry, carb-counting stroke-carb restriction? And I don't know why they uh, conflated those two terms because they're totally different to one another. What is the, um, the, the, the benefit of those things on type 1 diabetes? And then in the search, they specifically excluded all carbohydrate restriction research. And I mm-hmm. wrote to them and said, why did you actually specifically exclude research on low-carb diets? when well, there's plenty of evidence going back to 2008. And, and they couldn't come up with a, an answer that was certainly satisfactory to me. They just said, well, in the event, it was looked over in favor of carbohydrate counting. And there you go. And, of course, all the carbohydrate counting was based around the conventional uh, diet of 55% carbs. So, so and th- that's I, I obviously, felt-
1: yeah, yeah and, and that's the carbohydrate is sort of covered by the amount of insulin in order to in order to count, count your units, in order to be able to, to meet your but, dose. That's to right. To. The,
2: the fundamental management strategy for type 1 diabetes is, is to make sure you've got enough insulin in your body at that moment in time. Uh, so mm-hmm. when you're eating a meal, you'll need to count the carbohydrates because insulin, uh, one well, of its main role really is to reduce the amount of carbohydrate in the bloodstream, the sugar mm-hmm. in the bloodstream. So you have to count your carbohydrates for every, every meal and everything you eat and inject mm-hmm. the correct amount of insulin based on your personal requirements to, to try to counteract the rise of sugar caused by those carbohydrates. And it's very, very mm-hmm. difficult. So carbohydrate counting is fundamental to type 1 diabetes. And even though I'm keto, I still carbohydrate count. But, you know, the recommendation for carbohydrates is 300 grams of carbohydrates a day, roughly, for, for everybody in our country. And that that is actually based on no science whatsoever. Uh If I said, take carbohydrates and work out the optimum dose of carbohydrates for the human adult, it wouldn't come almost certainly to 300 grams. Mm. The only reason 300 grams or 55% of your energy from carbohydrates which is the same thing, um, is recommended is because we got fixated in the last 50 years on fat, and it was decided that fat is bad for us, which, of course, has subsequently been shown that the, the, the right sorts of fat aren't bad for us. and um, Because we had to reduce the, the amount of fat, in our diet there are only three what's called macronutrients there're fats there're proteins and there are carbohydrates and the total number of all of those three has to add up to 100 doesn't it so in reducing the fat and leaving the protein the same the carbohydrate level went up yeah presumably on the assumption that it was harmless and now we're finding that it's 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 completely that's the wrong approach you know carbohydrates are harmful yeah, most people who are obese will have been eating too many carbohydrates, not too much fat. So yeah, the basis of diabetes management is carbohydrate counting. But carbohydrate restriction diets, even though they've been used for years, were, were excluded from from the nice guidelines. That's why there's nothing on in the guidelines about keto diets.
0: So are they doing new guidelines? Is it about time to have new guidelines?
2: Guidelines should have been revised now in 2020. But I think they've been set back a little bit by, by the COVID crisis that we're going through. Um, but they're due to come out anytime. I, I tried to get onto the, uh, onto the guideline committee, but it was unsuccessful as were most of my friends who, who aspire to a ketogenic diet. So I look forward to seeing what comes out. But I'm not I am hopeful listening through the grapevine, but we'll see. I hope they put something in gives us a little bit of wiggle room to get started really.
0: Yeah. So how does that affect? With the guidelines as they are, how does that affect you with your patients?
2: Well, it puts me on dodgy ground if anything goes wrong, because as you know, we live in a quite a sort of litigious society and if anything goes wrong, clearly you end up having a complaint made against you and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what the patient decides they want to do. Clearly, if you end up in court, uh, and you've been seen not to be following the guidelines, you have to make a strong argument as to why you're not doing that. So I, I think, I think you can make a good argument for keto. And, and my own personal view is that it's unethical for me not to provide that as an option for people who are looking to manage their diabetes. I mean, as, as doctors, we're there to diagnose and provide treatment advice. On what we think is the best for the patient, as we see it, and we work that out with the patient. So we don't just sort of sit on a judgment stool and say you should do that. So no. these there are options as we see it, and we have to discuss those options. And it's up to the to the patient really to decide based on their own personal circumstances what they do. Um, so I, I do feel it's my duty to to at least provide the option of of low-carbohydrate. But it's very difficult for me to practice it without consent of of fellow professionals, and and it makes it quite a difficult environment to work in. Because at the end of the day, the poor patient's got to be the one that we're all working towards, you know, we're working towards the health of our patients. That's what we're all in the job for, isn't it? Yes. We're not here Mm -hmm. to work as individuals in silos giving our own little secret piece of advice, which is counter to everybody else, which is what it seemed to be at the moment. So with the practices that I, I work with, because I'm a local doctor, I travel around a little bit, I do get the consent of the, of the doctors before I even embark upon that. But of course, with type 1 diabetes being primarily a secondary care, it's hospital-driven discipline. They don't really, it's certainly my area, they don't really appreciate their patients being given advice, which is almost entirely the opposite advice to what they're giving. And I can understand that frustration but but I I do think it is a, a a valid option. I'm very very keen to make sure people get that option because it has transformed my life. And it's not just it's not just about me. You know I've heard I've overheard conversations that like, oh well he's a GP, he's got type one. He thinks that everybody should do what he's doing. Now I don't. There are four hundred thousand people in the UK with type one diabetes, and every single one of those will be managing their diabetes in a slightly different way. Based not only on the way their disease pre- presents, how much damage has been done, how long their disease has been going for, and uh, what their personal social circumstances are, what their, you know, their health beliefs are. So people manage their diabetes in all sorts of weird ways. And it's just mm-hmm. that if, if you have options, then you can decide what you want to do. Yeah. So it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to force low carb on every single time on diabetic. Uh, I do think. If, you know, every everyone I know that has converted to, to low carb will never go back to eating carbs. And at some point in their own personal journey, they get very, very cross indeed that they weren't offered this at an earlier stage. So I think if people get offered it, then they can choose what they want to do. They know it's available. It's a bit like smoking, isn't it? You, you, you know, people know the dangers of smoking. If they choose to smoke, well, that's their choice. You know the wider mm-hmm. argument of how much it costs to society is, 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 is irrelevant. It's their their choice, and they've made that choice knowingly. And then if they want to alter that choice in later life, or they they can, but at least yeah. they know non smoking is an option for them. Yeah, that's where I am at the moment. So it's difficult. Yeah.
0: In episode number three, I was interviewing Hannah Botis from Hannah Diabetes, and she was saying how angry she was that she hadn't been given this as an option.
2: Yes, I, I think that's, that's what, what we're saying, isn't it? You know, when you have type 1 diabetes, it's very, very difficult to control. And just for, for example, uh, if you look at the National Diabetes Audit for England and Wales for the last five years, the number of people with type 1 diabetes who achieve the target of 48 millimoles per mole, which is the current guideline target, is less than 10%. It looks on the graphs at around 6 to 7%. So 48 millimoles per mole is not even in the normal range. It's at the top end of, of the pre-diabetes range and right at the bottom of what you would call diabetes. And with that level of uh, HbA1c, you will almost inevitably get complications at some point. So even the guideline target set by NICE is, is accepting a level of complications, but they're having to balance that up with the... The fact that people who are on a high carbohydrate diet do get more hypoglycemic attacks, which of course are, uh, you know, can be potentially fatal, put people in very difficult situations, lose your driving license, whatever. So the figure of 48 is only a- achieved by less than one in 10 of our type one diabetics in, in the UK. And that situation hasn't materially improved over the last five years. So nine out of 10 people are not doing at all well with the conventional management and you know we really need to rethink type 1 diabetes management if if nine out of ten people not achieving target is acceptable yeah there's there so a sorry on.
0: what why do why do you think they need to rethink type 1 diabetes and how do you think we could go about it
2: I think we need to go back to the to the history of, of management of type one diabetes before insulin was discovered. The only option we had was the dietary option that happened to be a very strict ketogenic diet. In fact, it was it was whiskey and steak because <laughs> uh, the steak was, was obviously protein and fat, which doesn't uh, stimulate insulin secretion. So you don't need insulin to absorb those two things, and they you know they provide a lot of energy and nutrition and whiskey directly inhibits the hormone glucagon, which rises, which makes the blood sugar go up. So that diet was essentially a ketogenic diet, and there was as few carbs as possible in that because people did know that it was the carbohydrates that made type 1 diabetes worse, but clearly nobody quite knew what it was that um, uh, uh, there was a hormone until the insulin was discovered. Uh, and then subsequently, of course, insulin was... A bit rough and ready and there's only one type. And then in the 1970s, several different types of insulin were starting to be produced. We, we were able to, 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 to op- modify the insulin molecule. And then we got the long acting insulins, we got the intermediate acting insulins and we got the rapid acting insulins. So they made diabetes management much, much more flexible. And, and of course you can imagine then the temptation would be to say, Hey, diabetic you can eat what you like and and i can see that if if i was a diabetic around that time that'd be fantastic development for me yeah and then roughly at the same time came the low fat idea that we're all going to die of a heart attack if we if we eat any you know any fat from animals or whatever and then it was decided for some bizarre reason that people with type 1 diabetes hey why not eat exactly the same as everyone else and manage your insulin around that and i think at that moment type 1s were let down but i can see why it was so tempting to think that type 1s can do the same as everybody else because the stigma around type 1 diabetes was far far greater than it is now yeah so you know people with type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. are very poorly understood and nobody wants to go anywhere near them just in case they had a hypo or something now people with type Mm -hmm. 1 is much more accepted socially there's no stigma around type 1 diabetes really Mm -hmm. so but we still we're still employing this eat what you like and inject your insulin to, to match and it doesn't really work because nine out of 10 people can't do it. So I think the, the the key thing here is to re-examine what we've done and say, yes, we've got the tools now to at least make a reasonable job of managing diabetes, but we need to look at the carbohydrates knowing that we sort of got that bit wrong and we need to think, well, how can we manage the carbohydrates in a different way? In my view, it would be to cut them out as much as you can because it's so lucky that carbohydrates are the only nutrient, or sorry, yeah, the only nutrient that is non-essential. Mm. Every other nutrient, and fat and protein, are essential. We have to have certain fats and certain proteins to to exist healthily. But if yes. we never ate a carbohydrate for the rest of our lives, it wouldn't materially affect our health. It might affect our quality of life because lots of people like carbohydrates and vegetables and things. So, we, you know, there, there, there is the expertise. You know, Richard Bernstein started it. Lots of people with type 1 diabetes are doing the ketogenic diet. But unfortunately, it hasn't caught up in the guidelines. And for some reason, I, I still can't fathom people that just don't like ketogenic diets. And there is this ignorance in the type 1 healthcare professional community, thinking that the word keto means ketoacidosis. Now, diabetic ketoacidosis is a potentially fatal condition. And of course, if you're in nutritional ketosis, which is what you are if you're on a ketogenic diet, you produce more ketones than if you're on a carbohydrate-rich diet, because ketone bodies come from the burning of fat. So if you're on a lot of carbs, you're storing fat, therefore you can't burn it. But if you're not on many carbs, so if you're on a ketogenic diet, you're burning fat, and the end result of burning fat is this tiny molecule called a ketone body. So hence the ketogenic diet. So with, um, with, with ketones, the ketone level will go up if your body's burning fat because you're not eating carbs, but they only go up to a tiny level, really. I mean, mine run between 0.6 and 1.5 forever, whatever I'm doing. And the diabetic ketoacidotic level is 10, 15 or, or higher. So we're talking orders of magnitude different. And and it isn't true that you get diabetic ketoacidosis from a ketogenic diet. It Mm. just isn't true at all. Ketone bodies are healthy. The the, the good thing about ketone body, if you think about it, is we can actually excrete them. So ketone bodies are high energy molecules, which for some reason the body just excretes when it's got too much. Whereas with carbohydrate, you have to store it as fat. So our body will regulate itself with a ketogenic diet fairly efficiently by deciding how many ketones it wants as a result of burning all that fat.
1: Obviously, from your own personal journey and obviously your clinical practice, how have you been able to resolve the two these two domains together, given that you've had this transformative experience from your own journey? As a GP, how do you not give back, but how do you incorporate that in your your clinical practice?
2: Well, I spend quite a lot of my time talking to my colleagues about the benefits of low-carbohydrate diets, mainly around type 2 diabetes and obesity, and then all of the other benefits of keto diet and migraine. I have quite a lot of success with migraine, polycystic ovary syndrome, trying to get them to understand the metabolism, which as doctors, we're not really taught that much, strangely, about nutrition and metabolism. We learn a lot of biochemical pathways, but they're not They're they're at the very early stage of our medical training, so they don't really, you know, fit into the bigger picture. And, you know, but what we have to do then is to think about, you know, am I prepared then to take the next step and sort of push the guidelines a little bit? And so, you know, it's trying to get that conversation started as to how you might convince a, a patient or a healthcare professional that, Going into the ketogenic sort of type of diet is, is acceptable. One way of doing it is just to change the terminology to make it a bit more cuddly and just call it a carbohydrate restriction or carbohydrate management diet or whatever you want to call mm. it and then just creep down on the carbs. That, that makes it more acceptable. Ketogenic strikes fear into people. But I, I like to use the term because I like people to feel happy with it. Because once you understand something, it's not frightening anymore. Absolutely and um so, so there's one way of doing it and the, and the other way i'm I'm starting up sort of try, trying a bit like yourselves, get information out there online about type one diabetes and uh, ketogenic diets so i'm I'm active in that area at the moment and I, I do some talks if I can get get any talks around the area uh to try to promote to to promote the idea but yep. it's, it's a niche market at the moment but but I'm hoping enough people who will pick up the information that's out there and feel that they understand what the rationale is without worrying about the so-called side effects of a ketogenic diet and type 1 diabetes, which really don't exist.
0: Mm. I think we and need
1: to come up with a sexy name then, don't we?
2: We do over Oh, you did. Over to you. No, but,
1: yeah, but Jackie did. It, she calls it the modified Mediterranean diet.
2: Love <laughs> it. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good.
1: So and that's where you're saying about obviously promoting your message and, you know, just to sort of demystify the, the type one experience with, you know, in using the ketogenic diet as a as a therapy, as a therapeutic tool. And Jackie and I were privileged to see you last year with the Public Health Collaboration Conference. And um, ah, so yeah. it was really wonderful where you were actually talking about some of that science and that research, and you were saying the evidence is there. I um, remember you are saying about a fellow Aussie, Jessica Turton. Yes. And, you know, her, her systematic literature review evidence is obviously for for therapy. So as you said, the Science is slowly creeping in, but it's not yet translated into policy, and that's obviously being a founding member of the PHC um, is obviously some of the good advocacy work that you're doing.
2: Yes, it's going to take a long, long time to to change policy, I think. You know, it takes a lot to persuade. I mean, mean, all institutions get comfortable, don't they, over a period of years and and sub-institutions and everything gets bloated and everybody's comfortable with the status quo. So if all of a sudden you have to change one part of that institution, it's threatening to quite a few people. Uh, and and it, it, unless you have a revolution, everything has to sort of slowly, slowly change in, 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 in a direction that is, should be um, informed by science and, and, and good evidence. The problem with type 1, as, as I'll say again, is that 400,000 of us all manage our type 1 diabetes in a slightly different way. So you're going to get slightly different effects. I mean, when the pancreas gets damaged and we still don't know exactly what the damage is, how much, how much of the alpha cells get taken out with the beta cells and how much does the body not produce glucagon as well as not producing insulin? How much do the nerves get damaged over a number of years that regulate the whole of the, the diabetic process? So the diabetic who has, has had diabetes for one day will be having a totally different life experience to a diabetic who's had it for 60 years. The diabetics that well-controlled will be having a different life experience to somebody who isn't well-controlled, etc. And someone who's eating 300 grams of carbs a day is going to have a different way of managing it. Somebody who's eating uh, someone like myself at less than 30 grams of carbs a day. So it's difficult to do good quality research based around a, a, a single dietary change uh, when you've got such a diverse population that you're working on. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing. And therefore, I think what I have to do is to put my experiences out there based as much as I can around science and biochemistry and metabolism. And if people want to pick that up, they can pick it up and run with it. And if people with type 1 diabetes pick it up and run with it, well, then they will spread the word. And uh, eventually, there'll be enough people doing it to to make at least – thousands of N equals 1s. I mean, N equals 1 okay. in a, in a, in a mm. scientific sense is, is what we call an anecdote, It's number one, mm. you know, where the, the more numbers you have, the more likely you, you are to get accurate results from your research. So N equals 1 is, is a little bit at the moment a derogatory term. But if mm. all N equals 1s are doing exactly you the same thing together. and getting exactly the same results, I think that has its own power. It may not be technically, scientifically the best type of study, but it does inform people in the direction of travel that it should be looking to go.
0: Yeah. And if you influence oh. 10 people to change their way of eating and they go on and tell another 10 people, then the word starts mm-hmm. to spread. And I think we've all come to it through word of mouth, really. I think and so. I think it's going to have to change from the ground upwards, really. So, um, I think so then that then they're at the top they'll start listening and changing
2: i think most of us come to that conclusion but you know we, we live in optimism that one day um you know people who do get it as we would say uh will be in positions of influence or we can influence those people in positions of influence to to, to make the change happen more quickly mm. because i'm not saying that the whole the nice guidelines should say that type 1 diabetes can only be managed with a Mm. a low carbohydrate diet but at the moment the NICE guidelines say diabetes can only be managed with a healthy balanced diet and the implications of that are 55% of the energy comes from carbohydrates yeah. so this needs I'm to be an option to, I'm not trying to replace mm. one diet with another I'm trying to say well this should sit alongside it and that the healthcare professionals that provide that information should be trained up knowledgeable so they can flip between the two it's a bit like if you're trying to mm-hmm. speak two languages you need someone that's fluent in both yes to, to guide but and- like
1: you, yeah, yeah but like you said it's a nuance you know that that type one is such a nuanced um condition that having a range of options but as you're saying that it's just you know one option at the exclusion of the other doesn't allow for any sort of you know fluidity or you know the nuancing of the of the prescription
2: I think that's I think that's right, Louise. You, you know, everyone's so different. They need they need their own options to, to, you know, they need to employ options to to make a good job of what they're doing to to, to the best of their own ability. Mm. Some people don't want mm. to to change at one particular moment of time. They're happy just whacking in mm. eight units of insulin, managing managing the hypos and you know, having fairly poor HbA1cs. And, and at certain times in one's life, that may be the case. And then at other times people feel that, no, I need to make change. It's the same with every other aspect of our lives, and type 1's no different.
1: Which is really interesting because at that seminal moment, there's a behaviour model that talks about behaviour change and why that's really important to you was you had read Bernstein's book, you'd put it down for a year, and it wasn't until you were in Norway at this critical point that you went from that pre- oh, I think I know that I need to make a change, that pre-contemplation, and then you went into this, yep, this is it, this is my action phase, and I'm going to pick it up, and you made that hard start. You know, you you move that along. Which brings me to my question, which is from, obviously, your pre-keto to your now keto, your N equals 1, what does that look like? You know, how many carbs do you do? You know, how do you manage? Obviously, you know, have you reduced significantly your insulin? What's, what's a
2: normal day for eating? For okay, I, thank you.
0: Can I, I just want to come in there and say that maybe for the listeners, they don't understand what it is to be type 1 diabetic in the sense of how you manage that on a day-to-day basis. So maybe we could start there with how you used to manage it and then... yeah,
2: Okay, yeah. So the modern method at the moment of managing type 1 diabetes is to, is to accept that your body will make its own sugar, its own glucose. Uh, throughout the day and you have to have an insulin to manage that and that's called a long acting or or basal insulin so once or twice a day a type 1 diabetic will inject that and if they don't eat anything the glucose levels should stay reasonably flat and then when you eat something if it contains carbohydrate especially or, or protein to some degree and possibly fat but that's that's a bit further down the line so if you have say carbohydrates uh, then you have to inject insulin to match the amount of sugar that's going to be uh, generated from that carbohydrate meal. So say uh, before I went keto, I would have breakfast and that would probably be porridge because it's easy to make and that's what we're all told to eat, aren't we? And I would inject, so that would be about 80 grams or 90 grams of carbs, heaven for uh, and then I would inject possibly eight units, six to eight units of insulin to cover that. Depending on how uh, other aspects of my life would go on, whether I was doing any physical activity or whether I was a bit stressy, my glucose levels would would, would alter depending on on all of those factors. so that's the amount of sleep you've had amount how stress you feel under the amount of physical activity you're doing and what you eat. So that would generate a, a glucose level, and I would have hoped that covering the food um, would, would modify the glucose level to get it into the normal range. Typically, it wouldn't. Uh, some days it might, and then you'd have to if, if you've got a hypo because you put too much insulin, you'd have to have some biscuits or something or glucose tablets halfway through the morning. Not not a good look if you're um, if you're seeing patients. You have to stop for fifteen to twenty minutes to get self-settled. That's two patients gone. You see what I mean? Uh, and then repeat the process at lunch and repeat the process for your evening meal. Hope that you don't have a hypo throughout the night. So don't eat too late. Uh, and that, that's the pattern. If you're going to do any physical activity, you have to be careful. You know, if your gl- glucose is pretty normal or, or certainly above sort of, um, sorry, if it's lower than say six or something, you'd be a bit wary of doing anything distance, anything more than half an hour or so, because you, especially on your own. So running and things like that would be quite difficult because you may find that you go hypo. So you need to be aware that you might be feeling hypo on the run. You may, even find that just feeling absolutely exhausted on a run mimics the symptoms of hypo. Certainly, sweating is one of the symptoms of hypo. So you have to be prepared to stop your run, check your blood glucose, uh, sort your sugar levels out. Sometimes, if you're doing high high intensity physical activity, your blood glucose levels will go up. So then you've got to decide whether you're going to carry on as as they are. Are you actually going into deep diabetic ketoacidosis or not? measure your blood ketones if the sugar level's too high and then decide whether you're going to inject halfway through physical activity or wait until you finish. So it's quite a complicated thing day to day. And and certainly i I join the ninety percent of people that find that very difficult. And that in itself can be quite depressing. I mean when you go to for your annual review as, as a doctor and you sort of got really bad results, it's not much fun to, you know you just know you just know you've let the side down and there's nothing you seem to be able to do about it. On a ketogenic diet, which I'm on at the moment, I don't eat until about just after lunch, early afternoon. So I don't eat from eight o'clock at night until middle of the, middle of the afternoon, late more sort of lunchtime, early afternoon. So about one, anywhere between 12 and two. And then I'd have possibly an omelette or possibly a yogurt with some berries or something like that. Possibly a salad, might be some fresh meat or something, but no, no carbohydrates. So no potatoes, no bread, no biscuits. Uh, no rice, none of that sort of thing. And then I would inject, because I'm not having many carbohydrates, I would only inject one or two units of insulin to cover that. And because I've had so few units of insulin, I've got very little chance of actually having a crashing hypo. Because where's it going to come from? Hypos come from too much insulin
1: mm. in your
2: body at any one moment in time. So life's so much more pleasurable. And my blood glucose level, you know, I, I always say it goes from alpine to flatline. It used to be, you know, up, down, up, down, all the day. And and at night, it might be high, it might be low. But now it's pretty well flat all day, uh, which, which is remarkable. So I don't have to think anymore. It's always in the background, but I don't have to think too much about my diabetes. So I don't know what time it is now. But uh, say someone rang me up and said, do you want to go for a run now? I haven't eaten. I say, yeah, let's go. And I wouldn't need to make any preparation at all. I'd check my, I'd check my glucose before I went, but that's the only preparation I'd need to do and take a couple of glucose tablets with me. But that's all I'd have to do. It, it's remarkable how freeing a low carbohydrate diet makes you as a type one diabetic. Mm. You're not worried It's all about going hypo. You rarely go too high. I mean, a figure for 10, um, five years ago. Would have been acceptable. A figure of ten now—I'm I'm looking for my insulin pen yeah. to get it down. Yeah, you know, it's totally mm. unacceptable. And and people mm. with type one diabetes listen to this would be, if they're not Mazed. doing their and they're not well controlled. They'd be Mazed. amazed that I'm, mm. I'm actually looking at ten as a as a high figure. It's way too high. It's interesting yeah. how your your psychology changes when you get control, and it's such a relief to feel that you can actually have hope once more. Mm. It may just be that you don't go into complications, you know, and that's psychologically, that's a huge boost because as a doctor, I've seen all the complications of type 1 diabetes, you know, I see them every day and uh, it's not much fun. And Mm. you know that the current model of diabetes management is damage limitation. Mm. And I know that the model of keto management is actually giving people hope that they may not actually get damage in the first place. And once you've got that hope, it really f- frees up your, your mind to actually start thinking, you know, about mm. about the future in a positive way.
0: And from mm. the sound of it, it sounds like you have a better quality of life now
2: oh, absolutely. than you did before. Absolutely. No postural hypotension, no palpitations, no brain fog,
1: no visual problems. No yeah, visual problems. Mm. And no I future, think. you know, no future sort of you know, toes, sort of gangrenous toes or requiring... Well, hopefully the I'll, they'll be
2: avoided because my blood glucose level is pretty normal. So you good. know, it's no different to somebody without diabetes a lot of the time. Mm. I mean, sometimes you get your, your, your spikes and troughs and things, but by and large, it's pretty good. So if you're getting, you know, at the moment, the benchmark for, for of HbA1c is, is the benchmark for complications. HbA1c isn't the best marker in many ways of control, but it's what we have. And I'd like to see continuous glucose meters um, becoming more widespread in type one diabetes because then you get something called time in range, and that's the time you spend in, in the range that's dictated by your particular type of diabetes. Really, mostly in the normal range. So we can start then to say it's not it's not the actual average sugar; it's the how by how much it varies. So if you've mm. got a sugar that's, that's sort of twenty and, and five. You know the average is somewhere in the middle of those two, isn't it? Twelve, fifteen, whatever. Um, but if you if if you're down to between sort of, sort of three and seven, you, you're not varying by much at all. So the range of between twenty five is fifteen, isn't it? So you're not spend, necessarily spending much time at your at the average within that. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like yeah. to see CGMs more widespread. I think they they're a very good tool for type one diabetes. I think they're second only to insulin really in their importance.
1: Yes. Can you explain how I suppose in the NHS for for listeners outside of the UK, what's available to type one? Do uh, are the monitors free or subsidised? Strips are they free or subsidised on the NHS?
2: Uh, we're very lucky in the NHS because uh, all of our insulins are provided for free, test strips are provided for free, and blood glucose testing is provided for free. Glucagon's free, and obviously all of the aftercare, retinal screening, is all free based on the fact that most people have paid taxes for that to happen. So it's a really, really good system.
1: Mm.
2: We can't, at the moment, as type 1s, access continuous glucose meters ah. because the rules suggest that you have to have certain conditions met before that mm. happens, and it's often quite poor control, uh, etc. But about 20% of people have got CGMs at the moment, continuous glucose meters, or, or flash meters, the Libre sort of meter, mm. which is a which is start. So I, I think we're very, very lucky. The only thing I'd like to see, I mean, the ketogenic diet is often thought of as an expensive, exclusive sort of middle class diet. Oh, you're gonna have avocados and pasture fed beef all the time, you know, and who's gonna be able to afford that? Well, it's not not necessarily true. I mean, I'm I'm working on sort of providing information for type ones and I did a um a two week uh keto diet where I decided I this was this is my great lockdown experiment in COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and um I went out to the supermarket, which is, um, you know, what a well-known supermarket Tesco's, and I bought all of the things I thought you needed for a weak keto diet. It happened to be that what I'd chosen was 30 grams of carbs a day on average. It just happened to be that it was 95 grams of protein and 1800 calories of energy. And there are only 26 ingredients or something. So it was only 15 minute shop and all of those ingredients are were, were day-to-day ingredients as you call them they were ethically sourced as much as possible you, you know you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily get the cheapest if it was meat certainly then you'd try to go organic and british because i live in britain if you can and i did that for two weeks running and the price came to 28 pounds 50 a week per person and the average price in the uk the average spent per person on food is 38 pounds 50 so to get it down 10 pounds under budget and, and have, you know, good quality real food suggests that, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. And, and I do think, and doing this experiment, I thought, well, if you're type one diabetic and you're trying hard for ke to go keto and it works for you, you're actually using your nutrition therapeutically. It sounds an awful way to talk about food because food mm-hmm. is something to be enjoyed. And, and I love food, you know, I love experimenting with, with different foods. And, And and keto does give you enjoyment of eating. Mm. Uh, It's it's not a problem, but but I I think if people genuinely can't afford and they're type one at that sort of price, where you get good quality food, not just asking people to eat rubbish, uh, it should be it should be supplied really or or topped up on the NHS because we supply insulin. We supply as much Mm -hmm. insulin as people want, you know. And and if you're on a but but I think if you're on a high carbohydrate diet. It's going to be more difficult to, 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 to make that justification because the, the carbohydrates are causing the problem. Mm. So only if people mm. are on a very low carbohydrate diet, I think the therapeutic side of nutrition should be, should be taken into account. You know, nutrition is something that bolts on to our management. In you know, every single medical disease, apart from say celiac disease, which is obviously wheat mm. intolerance and peanut mm. allergy, just about every other disease, we accept mm. that, oh, you eat what you like and we'll give you some medicines for it probably heart disease, where we're trying to cut down the fat mistakenly. But that's, mm. that's a nod, isn't it? And diabetes, where we say, oh, don't eat biscuits, but everybody sort of does. But we don't, you know, we accept that, oh, this is the diet that everyone's on. Uh, and then we'll just treat, we'll just treat the disease. And, and it's not working, is it? It's only diabetes.
0: I think in most chronic diseases nowadays and conditions, it's not working. Nothing seems to be working. Everything seems to be getting worse.
2: Yes, yeah, so there's certainly more drugs available for all those conditions, aren't there? Mm.
0: <laughs> follow
1: the money.
2: <laughs> I think yeah. follow the money. Yes, probably.
1: <laughs> I mean, I was surprised by the the twenty eight pounds, you know, per person in terms of the the cost, and that really, obviously, as you're saying, it's it sort of says, well, you know, keto is expensive and it's not sustainable and you know, that it's, you know, that that first loss of weight is just obviously, which is true, it is water weight. It's certainly, these are some of what the naysayers are saying, but to your experiment obviously showed that it is sustainable, it is affordable, but really it's an investment. I mean, even if you were paying more for good quality food, it offsets the later development potential of those potential comorbidities.
2: Absolutely. I think that's why, that's why we should see dieting type one diabetes as therapeutic without, without taking the emotion and the fun out of, out of eating. Mm. You know, I, I, don't want to be counting my, my carbohydrates all the time. And with a keto diet, I don't. So, you know, once after six weeks of, of being on a keto diet, you get so used to what you're eating. Uh, and there's still lot the variety around that that, yes, but you are investing, aren't you, in your future health? There's no better investment for anyone than that.
1: Yeah. So you've blogged about some running some projects with keto and type 1 diabetes. Can you tell us a bit more about these projects?
2: Yeah, I did some running experiments when I actually got fully into keto and, and uh, started to think about intermittent fasting. I did a series of um, half marathons. I thought, well, I'll do 12 half marathons in 12 months. That's not, I mean, for me, that was a huge, I mean, that, for me, that was a huge sort of thing to do you know I, I'm normally a one half marathon, two half marathons the most per year, so to do one a month is absolutely ridiculous. but I, I thought, well, i'll experiment with keto around that and experiment with my diabetes to see see what I could get from it and what it showed me was the power of fasting fasting before running is is brilliant. it just smooths out your sugar control. it seems to give you boundless energy within reason and and you know it, it, there are only positives from that. And a couple of years ago, I did this. I was going to try to run the length of the whole of our country. It's, it's only a 1,000 miles. It's not far, because they're a small country. Um, But it was from... Uh, I, I managed to get 730 miles before my knee gave out and I had to stop. But I did all that on 30 grams of carbohydrates per day, just to show, really, because there's this idea that you have to have sugar for energy. Every sporting event you go to, mm. Gatorade and all these... You know, after was, a half marathon, you get goes. a full bag of goodie bars, and I just chuck it away mm. or give it to somebody mm. else. I mean, do you give it to somebody else because it's a waste of food, or do you chuck it in the bin because that's probably the best thing you could do? It's with poison. It, if it's was mm. Yes.
0: yes. Um, waste of dilemma.
2: So, so it did, but I, I gave it to my to take the way to prepare. But it does. It it did show to me that you do not need sugar for energy, and mm. we're, we're you, you know. So um I, I think that was quite valuable, and and. For, before any run now i'll fast and and that is actually the natural thing to do if you see a kestrel or a bird of prey hovering it's actually looking for food it's hungry it's not up there yeah. just having a bit of a day out you know it's not just yeah. had a mouse just to say it can go up and fly and and i think mm. we're the same we, we will we'll move to hunt yes we don't need to have energy to move We'll only move when yeah. because we're naturally lazy animals, most animals are naturally lazy, so we'll only move when we need to to, to do it for a reason so uh, so I think the human animal is no different we, we We're comfortable running on fat uh, and it's well known a lot of the long distance sports now most people are are doing a very low carbohydrate mm-hmm. type of diet so and it's starting to show promise i th- I think in those sports where you need instant power like a lot of the track sports sure. you know, certainly the, the, the short mm. distance sports you, mm. you'd probably be okay with, with yeah. you probably need what's called glycogen carb. mm. because carbs are the only fuel that can burn in the absence of oxygen so when you're making a quick dash for something you're going to have to use sugar you're going to have to use your either your glycogen your carbohydrate stores or you're going to have to eat something beforehand to get those stores up because when you do that 400 meter run it's all going to be done without oxygen pretty well and you're going to generate a lot you're going to need a lot of sugar because you haven't got any oxygen. You, that's the only fuel you've got. You won't do it on fat because the fat needs oxygen to burn in. So, But by and large, the, for most of us who just stagger about, <laughs> call it running, <laughs> just tip your head forward and move towards, no. catch your head up sort of thing. For most of us, you know, we could go miles and miles just using our fat stores. I'm, I'm hoping with a small team to be showing that within the, by the end of the year that you do not You've got a fat store inside your body, and you can quite happily tap on that for, for a long period of time without having to eat anything, really. Yeah, Fun. Yep.
1: definitely got those Krispy creams from ten years ago, still waiting to be used up.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so you're talking about um, type one athletes, and who who are using the keto ketogenic diet. Uh, there's an Australian Beck Johnson who actually long distance swimmer. Spam from um, the coast off of Perth to Rottnest Island. So she's a, yeah, a type one long distance woman. So that's uh, interesting. Uh, I remember hearing her on a podcast. And uh, so I was talking about, you know, obviously managing and fueling. And as you said, you know, you need obviously for that explosive energy, it's different in terms of your carbohydrate loading as opposed to being able to access your fat stores for that longer, slower, yeah, marathon type events.
2: Absolutely. There's lots of us doing it now and, and it's interesting to see the results we're getting. And I think we're going to be rethinking how you manage, uh, physical activity in type one diabetes. We're starting to find that we're, we're, we're needing a lot less insulin than we thought we would. And, uh, you know, those things are out there to explore. But as I say, there's a group of us sort of having a go really with exploring mm. the limits of, of physical activity and type one diabetes. So. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you know how we get on.
1: Excellent.
0: And you've recently started your own website. Tell us a bit about that.
2: I have. I've been trying for a couple of years to work with another company to get information out there on a keto diet. And I'm, I'm, uh, I've started to sort of do that myself now. It, it's based around education and information for people with type one and also healthcare professionals. The information's available to everybody, whether whichever sort of category they fit into. Because I feel that every single person with type 1 needs to be an expert, whether they're a healthcare professional or someone with it. And the advantage of the healthcare professional, they've just got the experience of seeing more people than the person that's in front of them. So they, mm-hmm. can, they can add on and, and, and add more quality to the information they're giving across. Uh, and that's that that is really based around a series of podcasts, a bit like we're doing now, but interviews with people with type 1 lots of information stories, uh, a few blogs, and then a whole series of webinars with mostly healthcare professionals with type 1 themselves who uh, are talking about aspects. So we've got a, a renal physician who's type 1. We've got someone who's had a transplant of kidneys who's type 1, talking about mental health and attitudes towards type 1 diabetes. Um, we're talking about physical activity in type 1. We're talking about pregnancy. We're talking about how to help. People's experiences of raising children and people's experiences of being children with type one, so we're hoping that I'm hoping that that's going to to fill that gap. It is unashamedly keto it's not nibbling away around mid carb level because most people if they choose to do that then at least they'll know what their extremes are. So keto I don't think is an extreme diet, but it is one end of the range of carbohydrates which we all seem to still talk about as as the the main um driver of type 1 diabetes which of course at the moment it is
1: mm. Mm.
2: yeah right so that's type1keto.com yes. number one, one. Mm. uh
1: troy stapleton yeah Tro- troy stapleton is an australian radio radio yeah, i know troy radio- yes yeah yeah, so it's good. He's a very to, um, big cyclist
2: and he's done a lot of uh, experiments lot of with stuff, cycling yeah. and long-distance cycling and fasting and, and, and mm-hmm. put all his results online. He's, 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 he's uh, on our website.
1: Awesome. Yeah, so sure. I'd, I'd seen him when I was back in, back in Australia on the um, Low Carb Down Under conferences and stuff. So
2: Yeah, a yeah, very inspiring man. Yeah.
0: So, Ian, before we go into our last questions, do you want to tell people how they can contact you?
2: Well, the best thing to do is go onto, our, onto my website, com and, and use the contact form there. I think that's the easiest thing to do. And then depending on the level of interaction we need, we can go from there. Okay, great. Thank you.
0: So looking back on your keto journey, is there anything you would do differently?
2: I started it as soon as I was diagnosed as Taiwan diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> There's absolutely no doubt that I, that's the one thing i would do differently uh everything else has been an exciting adventure uh, so the answer to that is no i would go straight into keto you know from day one and accept that that is the discipline required to manage type 1 diabetes mm. see how i see how i got on after a few weeks and then modify accordingly uh if i couldn't tolerate it i'd probably just probably add a few more carbs in and some people do have to add carbs. You know, it's not it's not for everyone. It's just everyone has to feel their way, uh, which is why it still has to be an option. For, and some people just do not suit a ketogenic diet. But for me personally, I would read up about the experiences of others. Um, and I think that's quite important to find out more about the subject. And then if I was doing it from the start, I'd, get, I'd, I'd plan to do it fully for at least three weeks. So I could commit to three weeks of strict keto. But within type one, you have to manage your insulin around that. So I I would have to work with my healthcare professional to get my basal insulin uh, optimized and then make sure I know how to count my carbohydrates. And then I would work with my demons throughout that because if I'm sugar addicted, a lot of people are addicted or very dependent on sugar. A lot of people are emotionally attached to certain foods, which, um, you, you know, it, it, it's not. You know, we all are, probably. Um, so within that time, I'd say, well, I've got, you know, if, I'm, if I like sugar, how am I going to stop eating that biscuit? And, you know, I must be prepared to fail, but be prepared to restart. You know, they say for people with, with severe problems, it takes seven or eight times to, to start and, 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 you know, to succeed. It's not, you're going to do it first, go. But I would try my best to go for it full out for three weeks, work with my sugar addiction, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then, you know, hopefully that would show me enough benefit to 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 keep keep me motivated. And certainly, in my personal experience, I'm still motivated to learn more and more and more. Uh, you know, reducing the carbs, you know, to a very low level will make the biggest difference. But then you start to see the effect of protein. And you start to see the effect of physical activity, lack of sleep, stress. Everyone everyone I've interviewed about type 1 seems to feel that stress is the second biggest driver of poor sugar control, which is interesting, isn't it? But these things come through. Once you've turned down the volume of the sugar effect, the carb effect, all these subtleties start to sort of of come through. You start to notice them. Hmm. It's a bit like in this COVID where all the traffic disappeared. We start to notice the birds singing. You know, before that, you'd never hear one because, you know, there's too too much traffic going by. And, and it's the same with, with your diabetes. Once you cut the carbs, you start to notice the subtleties. You drain down your insulin volumes to, to a level that's much more physiological, much more natural for your own body. And then all the other hormones that work with insulin seem to become more efficient as well. And I think the mental improvement, one, the, the relaxation, the fact that you've actually You've got it. You've actually got the control. It's, 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 it's immense. Um, so, so it's very significant emotional time that think, I can actually do this. You know, as a as a doctor who shouldn't know how to do it, it took me twenty years to think I can do this. Mm. You know, and before that, it was oh my god. You know, I hope my next retinopathy isn't as bad as the one before, or something like that. And 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 the actual relaxation and and the, the de-stressing you get from thinking I can crack this just drives you forward. And then the mental clarity that you get from, from your body burning ketones, it helps enormously to get your thinking processes right. So then your inner demons, your emotional problems around food or, you know, your sugar addiction, you'll be more able to conquer those as well. Although they will be very difficult sometimes. And, and clearly those people with eating disorders, that's a, that's a whole new level. And, you know, they'll need specialist help around that as well. But there's no reason not to go keto. You know, having having a food addiction like a sugar addiction is is pretty bad isn't it and we yeah. really accept that as normal you know we even market it yeah <laughs> yeah true and I think that if you do if you do sort of um, try it and then you you know you have a, another stressful phase of your life and, and go off well that's not the end of the world you, you at least you know and you can go back on it again if you want to
0: exactly so, yeah there's always a way back and I think so. once you know how to do it how to do it you, you don't lose that it's I always so. there as an option yeah
2: have another new year's resolution every year can't you i'm going to do it this year <laughs> <laughs> <well done>
0: <laughs> and i was i was struggling this week when i came back from holiday i'd been a bit off keto and i was struggling get getting back on so i just said to louise louise you have to hold me accountable to keeping on track and just the mentioning of that to her was enough to just get me back in the zone and keeping on plan.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Do you fast at all? Mm. Because I find fasting is a great way of getting back on track. Mm.
0: Mm. But I find it harder when you've been off track to fast. So yes, we yeah. normally do two 40-hour fasts a week, sometimes three, mm. and sometimes some longer ones. Um, but this week I'd, I've planned on – coming back and doing a four-day one, and I couldn't do that. And I couldn't even do from Sunday night to Tuesday lunchtime, which is a norm for me. Mm. By Monday afternoon, I was eating again.
2: Mm. But
1: by next week, it will be back.
2: Good. Mm. And that's
1: that's what I was trying to get Jackie to sort of, you know, look, you know, you've just, because of the the break from the holidays, it's like we're going to have to rebuild the fasting muscle. So, you know, and it's getting back into that routine and having that – you know we had the buddy system being able to you know keep keep each other you know committed to yeah come on let's go let's let's keep keep fasting and um yeah so it's just obviously getting back into the routines and building that fasting muscle and i think the peer support was really good you know we were really you know egging each other on for you know we were mixing things up we you know we had short fasts we had long fasts um so, yeah, it's it's been, been quite a good, um, you know, even though we're across time zones and things like that because I start mine first and then obviously she comes into it and of then course. I break it and, yeah. I,
2: so, I think it's but actually.
1: It, but having the accountability and that's something that I know that Jackie and I have spoken about is having, yeah, having those accountability buddies and that with the fasting. And Jackie said, right, that's it, I'm going to, you know, I need to be accountable. And I really wanted her to think about it, well, what is it that you really wanted to achieve? How do I know that you're being accountable? And what time frame? I think that was really important. And so Jackie's put it out there that, it, you know, until her birthday that that's obviously she's got some very specific things that she wants to focus on. So, yeah, really. And like you said, it's about that hope, you know, having hope that I can obviously get back on track mm. is, is really important.
2: I think it's actually more difficult for people with um, obesity and type two diabetes to actually focus because, as, as a type one, every single day you, you, you've got a reason to do it. But you know, a lot of people type two. You say, "Well, you don't know you're diabetic until I tell you." So every single one of their days, they probably feel a bit more tired. They might be putting on a bit of weight. But hey ho, everybody in the cafes is having a, having a muffin with their with their coffee or tea or whatever. So. You know, you, you've got less. You can't quite see why you have to do it, if you see what I mean. Whereas, as a type one, you, you sort of it's there in front of you every single time, so it's easy to be applied. So, so it, it is. It is much more important, isn't it, to have support systems around you? It is important to have support systems around you anyway. But when you've you've got no obvious reason, if you see what I mean, to 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 do differently to what you you, you you'd otherwise do it, it mm. requires a lot more application
0: yes definitely Incredible. yeah mm. and i don't i don't notice any side effects if i eat off plan so therefore
2: yes, there's it.
0: nothing to keep me on it other than my
2: mm.
0: um, desire yeah. to be healthy yes mm.
2: and that's the, that's mm. a good driver isn't it
0: <laughs> yeah what tips would you give well we usually say what tips would you give somebody starting on a low carb or keto diet but you of course you can include to type one diabetics in that, and maybe even type two diabetics.
2: Well, I'd say in general, I, I would say want to do it. You've got to want to change. You know, read around the subject, start to get into your consciousness that this is the direction you might want to go in, and and then I, I would prepare, like like I was talking about type one diabetes. Really, I, I I quietly prepare to do it, and then choose a time when I, when I felt mentally. Ready to go. You know, if your cat's just died and you sort of lost your job, it's not really necessarily going to help. By then, you decided you're going to go go low carb at the same time. Mm. So, so, so I think it's it's something that requires planning. But I think the key thing is psychologically, you've got to want to do it. Uh, you, you shouldn't be dragged into wanting to go low carb. So find the reasons to do it. A lot of people, David Unwin, certainly he uses the, the hope model. You know, what, what, what are your, what do you, what do you want to do? And, and he often finds, Oh, I need to get fit because I, I want to go on this walking holiday or Oh, I'm going to do a lot of stuff in a hotel. So I want to look good for the, for the hotel pool or whatever, you know, and, and, or, you know, and he, people have their own goals, which aren't necessarily the same goals as their, their therapists and work with what people want to then achieve the goal, but then get them, get people to understand and, how much do you understand about what you're doing? And do you know why you're doing it? So, so be ready to do it. Get the conditions right to do it and understand why you're doing it and then go for it, um, wholeheartedly. Because I, th- I think the changes you get in the first three weeks. So I think everyone should try it nonstop for three weeks, uh, are so, so profound that you got it. You can see it. You can see, you can see that the plan you've set in. Has actually worked. It's not an act of faith, like oh, you're 55, you've got high blood pressure, sticking on a statin for 25 years, and you might live seven days longer. Yeah. That's an act of faith, really, based on very flimsy science. But but you you'll see the results in three weeks, and then you'll you'll know whether it's for you or not. Mm, yeah. uh, so that's what I would say. So get right. ready, do it non-stop for three weeks, and understand why you're doing it. So be prepared to learn a little bit of the basics. Then you'll be confident in your food choices. You'll understand that, that brown bread is just as bad as that white bread. Yeah, very little difference. Yeah.
0: Thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
2: Well, it's really been uh, been great to talk to you too as well and share ideas. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. What's really remarkable about um, Dr. Lake's experience is obviously how transformative this. Not a simple change, but obviously, you know, adopting and taking a ketogenic lifestyle approach has been on his quality of life. That it has certainly improved his, you know, his blood glucose control. As he sort of mentioned, he was rattling off, you know, how he's improved with his, you know, his cognitive abilities, his um, exercise, his sleep, and how, how well, you know, he's thriving now.
0: Yeah. And his quality of life has improved.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, dramatically. Yeah. But it's obviously interesting for him and his journey that he obviously had read the, the Bernstein book and here's the solution, you know, that's what Dr. Bernstein's book is actually called. It's called the Diabetes Solution. But he wasn't actually quite ready for to make those particular changes. And and for me I can understand that that's obviously you need to be in this state of readiness. You know, you can be presented the solutions or you know that you need to make a change, but, you know, the solution becomes apparent at that time that it's still about your state of readiness to to make the change. Knowing that you need to make a change is one stage, but, you know, and then obviously contemplating, yep, I'm going to get prepared, as he said, to make those changes. And then obviously doing the action and then it becomes a bit of a feedback loop in obviously reinforcing those particular changes. Hmm. And he said how he'd
0: read the book a year before he actually put it into action because he was scared of fat. And I totally understand that because I read uh, Tim Ferriss' 4 Our Body and he was advocating a low-carbohydrate diet. And I did it for about three weeks. But again, I was scared of all the fat that you needed to eat. And when I spoke to a doctor, he wasn't my doctor, he was just someone I knew, he said, oh, no, you can't do that, you need your carbohydrates. So for me, any excuse to go back to potatoes and bread was great. But in a way, I could have been doing it for a whole year before I actually did come to it again. But sometimes you Mm. just need to get some more information before you're ready to take the leap. Mm.
1: But also I know that um, we've, we've read Gretchen Rubin's book and we can obviously still be paralysed in this fear state that we can be analysis by paralysis. So we get stuck sometimes in these states of preparedness that I, I know that I need to make a change, but what are my options? Oh, look, you know, there's all these range of options and then we get stuck in this paralysis state of which option do do I then choose?
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: But then can be the problem is, as you said, you know, you can think about that, but it's that fear and shame that gets connected into that as well. Oh, no, my doctor is going to shame me for eating, you know, eggs or butter or cream or, you know, any of those sorts of good things that we tend to do. And, um, yeah, then we become in this cycle of fear and shame for for the choices that we make. And like you said, it's better to go back to the same old, same old where we, aren't going to be feared or shamed into into making the wrong choice.
2: Mm.
0: So I felt this was a really good interview. It was really interesting to find out more. I mean, as I said, we had Hannah in episode number three and it's just really interesting to see, the you know, what we take for granted and other people don't, in a way. That The fact that we can just go and eat something and we don't have to worry about it or think about it whereas they mm. have to constantly be thinking about it and to know mm. that it improved their quality of life
1: yeah the the lived experience for the person living with type 1 diabetes is obviously being hypervigilant you know making sure that they've got enough insulin to cover the the carbohydrate that they've had but now obviously you know dr lake has been liberated from that constant hypervigilant state and he sort of was expressing his relief and his you know being in this a lot more relaxed um, Mm. state so that's really wonderful yeah where can the listeners find the show notes jackie
0: the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero one five search for fabulously keto on facebook our facebook page is called fabulously keto and you can follow us there or you can follow us on twitter our handle is fabulously keto or follow us on instagram fabulously keto one did you enjoy the show let us know you listened by tagging us in your insta story or instagram post using the handle fabulously keto one and the hashtag tfkp